Scripture reading this evening will be from Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. Psalm 130, 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's my nephew right there. I'm proud of him and my other nephew and my niece and Todd's family. I'm proud of uh, Larry for that prayer. You worded a very appropriate and adequate prayer for us all. Thank you, Larry. And uh, Rodney, always love your voice, but uh, your song selection was wonderful tonight. Thank you very much. And uh, I want to compliment Anthony. I guess I'm just thankful tonight. I want to compliment Anthony on a good series on foundations. Just foundational cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith is what he's been covering on Sunday nights. Talked about digging deep and building on the rock and that you got to dig to do that appropriately. And even today, we, we drop footers in down deep. We pour walls now to make them one piece and it's important to do that, but he's talked about uh, the fact that our thinking about God shapes our beliefs, and then our beliefs determine our actions. And so, right thinking should lead to right beliefs, and right beliefs to right actions. I remember him saying uh, uh, that, and um, uh, it stuck with me, and, and we've looked so far at the Bible doctrine of the Trinity, we've looked at the person of God, we've looked at the story of creation, we have looked at the fall and the consequences of it, subsequent sin and death, and because of that, it's a natural lead into tonight's foundational doctrinal subject, and that is redemption. So man sinned in the garden. Early on, first man and the first woman sinned. I don't know how long it was before they did. Don't you wonder? I wonder how long they made it. You know, was it was it later that day? Was it the next day? They were probably too tired to sin the first day. You know, probably went to bed early that day. But was it was it soon? Was it? I don't know. But God knew that sooner or later they were going to sin, and that word comes from an original meaning, meaning to miss the mark as an archer would miss a bullseye. And that means necessarily that there is a bullseye, that there is a will that God is giving to us and expecting us to hit dead center. And we're capable of doing that. We have potential to do it, and He expects us to do it. He expects us to be obedient. And that's not too much to ask because we can. He also knows that we're going to make choices out of our nature, our human nature, being tempted by Satan, the great tempter, uh, that we will fall. And so I want to look at this idea tonight that, that redemption was in the mind of God before creation and that He worked it out through the history of man and that it is eternal in nature. 
That is, those who are redeemed will remain redeemed forever and ever and ever. I want to share with you how to be redeemed. But let's make a distinction first between this morning's restoration and tonight's redemption. This morning we discussed restoration of a child of God back to good standing with the Father. Now that's once you're a child of God, but tonight we're going to talk about redemption, which is that initial beginning to return to God, a a beginning of a relationship with God. And um, by definition, letrao carries with it the idea, says Thayer, of releasing by paying the full ransom. To release on receipt of a ransom, an exchange. There is a price paid and something returned. Barclay says, back to its rightful owner. And another way of looking at it is that it is a rescuing from the power and possession of an alien possessor. That is not the rightful owner. And so I'll ask you some simple questions. Let's see if you can answer these. In our discussion on redemption from this religious standpoint, from a Christian standpoint, who would be the buyer? The Father. Who is being held ransom? Men in sin. By who? Satan, alien possessor, not the rightful owner. All souls are mine, says the Lord. Ezekiel 18.4 All souls are mine. He's the creator and maker of us all. Possessed by Satan. Why? Because we have chosen to depart from God. At some point in our life, if we are adults, we, we've made a choice already to depart from God, to proclaim each of us our own gods. And whatever other gods you may claim, Larry prayed that it was a privilege to pray to the one true God and there are no other gods. Whatever you make your God to be, essentially you are God if you're not the God of heaven. When men create and fashion from wood or stone, things that they call gods, the purpose of that is so that you can become God and determine what religion you want to follow. Ultimately, we sin and separate ourselves from God by pursuing the thought of being God. That is, no one telling me what to do. I don't have to be accountable to anyone. I don't have to answer to anyone or anything. And I can do what I want. That's the root problem of it. And that's why it separates us from God. God gave us free moral agency. He does not make us love Him. You can't make somebody love, can you? You can't. And so He lets us go. But He has gone to a great extent to buy us back. What's he buying back? Our identity. Our identity as creatures of God made in his image. Genesis 1, verse 26 and verse 27. He's buying back our dignity. He's buying back our souls. 
that word referring to the eternal nature of our spirit. He's buying back our souls. Redemption begins a relationship between God and man. Restoration is returning to the relationship. Redemption is being bought back. Restoration is being brought back. In redemption, value is placed on the soul. In restoration, that value is simply restored. Or reassured, I should say. It's reassured. David said, I'd have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 27, 13. I'd have lost heart unless I had believed that God could redeem me and restore me. We would have no hope if it weren't for this doctrine of redemption. We would have no hope if it weren't for the fact that God in His eternal patience waits for us to return to Him and gladly receives us when we do. Isaiah prophesied long before the coming of Jesus Christ that God would buy people back, but He would not be using money. Listen to this. In Isaiah 52, verse 3, I hope I'm not jumping too far ahead on John's class, stealing thunder from him, but it's hard not to go to Isaiah on these matters. This prophet speaks a lot of this doctrine. Isaiah 52, 3 says, For thus says the Lord, You have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Wow, that's powerful. That's short and sweet. You have sold yourselves for nothing, but you'll be bought back without money. You'll be bought back, but it won't be with money. Or he says in chapter 50, which of my creditors, the Lord says to his people, is it to whom I've sold you? For your iniquities, you've sold yourselves. You see, if God is in the people business, he is in the purchasing department. <laughs> He's not in sales. What does he say there about being sold away from him? You sell yourselves for your sins. You'd rather sin. And what happens is, you make an exchange, I'll give my soul to Satan for a little bit of this pleasure. Or a lot of it. And God says, I didn't sell you. I wouldn't do that. I want you to remain with me. God doesn't play mind games with us. He doesn't have some tricks up his sleeve to try to be cruel to us, and he's not puppeteering us. So, he says, you sold yourselves for nothing. That's what he thinks of sin. It's just a lie. It's just a lie. You want a little pleasure, but I'll give you great joy. It's far greater than temporal pleasures, which never satisfy. Oh, praise God with the psalmist who said, Sing praise to the Lord, you His saints, and give thanks to the remembrance of His name, for His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God may deal with sin in your life. He may chasten you. His hand may be upon you, 
for a time to turn you back to Him for eternity. See, the Lord chastens those whom He loves. I believe that He chastens those who are not Christians to turn them to Him. I think things happen to people. I think some of them are from God Himself. That's the way it seems to be with the Bible, in the Bible. Some things are Satan after you. Some things are God chastening you. And as Job, we don't know which it is. Job didn't know what was going on. He just knew he was suffering. But do understand that in love, God will try to turn you to Himself. He may rattle your cage a little bit. He may give you a wake-up call. But He wants you to turn back eternally. He may punish you or let you reap the consequences of your sins. He may let you have a little taste of it. A little taste of your medicine. He may be angry and do it. Angry at you. Whether you're a sinner or you're a saint, God will do that. Just like a parent giving us what we need ultimately for our own good. But His joy is... He comes in the morning... And His favors for life. I love that. Redemption is not an afterthought of God's after Adam and Eve sinned and He said, boy, what am I going to do now? It was a forethought. God, and I'll let you begin turning to Ephesians chapter 1. God, from before the creation of the world, prepared to redeem us from sin and to receive us to Himself ultimately in heaven in the end. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-14. through 14. Let's read this together. I want you to, to look for these two ideas. Look for redemption, but look for when it started. Like, when did God think of this? And then look, uh, how long does it last? Is this just a temporary exchange? God buys my soul, and then if I sin, do I lose it? What, what, what happens here? Paul says to the Ephesian church right off the bat, Blessed be the God, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed, past tense, in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, now He's looking ahead to Christ, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in Him. In Him we also have obtained an inheritance. Being predestined, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be, future tense, to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, listen to this, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until the redemption of the purchased possession. God has bought us. But you know what's interesting? He hasn't received us to Himself yet. He hasn't received us yet. Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 39 and 40 says that He has something better in mind than just people dying and go to heaven, dying and going to heaven. He wants to usher everybody in at one time. And until then, there is this place called paradise. That is, that is a, a taste of the eternal joy that we will enjoy. We're, nobody is sitting there in a room twiddling their thumbs as if they're waiting on a doctor to come out and see them or they're in the emergency room. You know, that, that, that feeling and that wait sometimes. They're tasting of the, of the joy of eternal salvation there. And he says, all of these in chapter 11 of Hebrews who looked ahead and considered themselves pilgrims and strangers and foreigners, all these who looked at, they haven't received the inheritance yet. God having something better in mind that we should all go in together. Take a look at that. It's interesting. And so, in this future time, when Christ returns, the, he, the Corinthian letter says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Christ, after Paul explained to Thessalonians, that we'll all be raised up to meet Him in the air, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will turn the kingdom back over to the Father. I believe it's at that time that He will receive the possession as a rightful owner. Now, there is a sense in which He possesses us from the beginning. Whether, whether we're in Satan's hands or not, God, all souls are His. There's a sense that that is true. There is also a sense that once you become a Christian, as Jesus explained in John 10, that we are in the grasp of the Father and no one can snatch you out of His hand. But you actually don't meet Him until that day that you return home. And we'll see Him as He is, John explained in 1 John chapter 3. And we'll walk with Him and talk with Him in the garden as we sing. And all these songs. We'll be singing a new song. And the revelation gives us glimpses to that day. So if you're a Christian, you're purchased. But you haven't been ushered back to the owner yet, is my understanding of this. Now, Maybe you can enlighten me some more on those things, or maybe I'm off on that a little bit, but putting all of those things together, I see a, I see a nice puzzle coming together. It, it, is, it is chronological order in the Scriptures that you can say this happens and this happens and this happens, but I love the idea that the Holy Spirit in your life is given to us as the guarantee that this is going to happen. What does that tell you about the Spirit in your life? You should be fully aware of His presence in your life. You should be able to know the Holy Spirit's in your life without laying your hands on somebody and performing a miracle, which the Bible says does not occur anymore. That the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life bears fruit. And you'll be known by your fruit, right? And you will know your fruit. You'll be able to see your own fruit. You'll be able to look at your life and see the changes that are being brought about by the Holy Spirit. And God said, yes, this is how you know that I am with you and I have you marked. That's how you know. We are spiritual people. 
We're new. We've been given a new heart and a new spirit. We're new. Something different about us. And um, if we obey God, if we listen to His Word, and we begin to follow Him and learn of Him, I believe that becomes very apparent that the Holy Spirit is present with you. So much so that David this morning, as we read in Psalm 51, said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Why, David? I cherish the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. He seemed to know what the Holy Spirit was doing in his life. He seemed to know from inner peace to outward actions the work of the Spirit in his life. We should know him even as fully as that. As fully as that. David was filled with the Holy Spirit, so are Christians. Filled with the Holy Spirit. I love that. And so God planned His work in His mind before the creation of the world. And then, from the time Adam and Eve sinned, He began to work His plan. He worked it through that time in Genesis 3 and 4. And over in chapter 6 of, of, of Genesis, we see Him saving Noah and his family. Some thousands of years later, because of the sin in the world, God is working out this redemption. There were only eight. How pathetic. Only eight to save, but God saved them. He went to great extents to save those eight. Did He not? And He brought Israel out of the clutches of Egyptian bondage by the man, the murderer, as we mentioned this morning, named Moses, whom he said, you're better than that, Moses. I'm going to use you to do something better than what you've been doing. He brought them out of Egypt to free these people to become the nation of priests and kings to God. And then he worked on through the time of that nation up to the coming of Christ. He worked his redemption through the age of the apostles, and they're spreading the gospel into all the world. And he's been working ever since, up to and through today, and until he returns. Jesus said, my Father is working, and I must work the works of him while it is day. It's still daytime. It's still daytime. God is still working. Christ is working. The Spirit is working to bring about redemption in every man's soul before He comes again. They're busy. He's been steady at work. He's been patient in His work. And He's been faithful in His work. And I, something dawned on me when John said that if we confess our sins... In 1 John 1, 9, that He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Don't we have enough evidence of that? That when God says, I'll forgive you your sins, when you look at all the work He did, would you say, I don't, I don't think You'd forgive me. Really? You want to read, read your Bible again? Look at the things that He did to save eight people in the flood. When He says He'll save you, He'll redeem you, and He'll restore you, He will. We need to believe that. We need to see our worth and our identity in His eyes, and then we'll believe Him. In fact, I think this depth of His work and the painstaking details to which He worked are very reflective of the love that He has for man. So much so that David said, 
when I consider the sun and the moon and the stars and all these wonderful works, what is man that you're mindful of him? Well, God loves you. That's what. God loves you. We are marvelous creation, creatures. This is a marvelous creation. He doesn't just say, well, that didn't work and go start another one somewhere. He's working with us, working out our salvation. He's been saving men in every generation. Yet, throughout all his work through the history of man, the way in which he saves us was accomplished in three days. Three days. You know which three I'm talking about. On the cross, that eve before the Passover, that day he was in the tomb, and that third day that he rose again. That would be the act that God employs to save men in every generation. David looked to it. Moses and Elijah came to seek Jesus, transfigured on the mountain. What do you think they were talking about? They were looking forward to it. And we look back to it. And so the Hebrew letter says in chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Good things coming. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once for all, one into the throne room of God, having obtained, listen to this wording, eternal redemption. He obtained it. He accomplished eternal redemption. When, when, the, when the purchase price was made, the life of the perfect Son of God, and His blood was spilt, and His life drained from Him, God said, I'm going to pay his life for your life. That's what I'm going to offer Satan. I'm going to offer him a perfect sacrifice. You couldn't do anything with Jesus. And so he is going to be the sacrifice that redeems all the rest. And we'll even call them his brethren. Hmm. How much more then, he says in verse 14, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, he says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to, say, to serve the living God? And for this reason, He's the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. See how it reaches back? To all those under the first covenant, it even reaches back to the patriarchs and redeems them, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Redemption is eternal. It began in the mind of God, the eternal being, and it, it'll, it'll be enjoyed by those who are purchased eternally. What a powerful concept. No wonder the psalmist said, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. Peter said, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. He's the only one. Man's redemptive work falls short. Man's always recognized the need for redemption that somehow their worth must be restored. 
Man has recognized that. Some have pursued the God of heaven, recognizing Him as the true Creator. Others have pursued other means. Men have been very religious all through the ages. We've tried to make amends for our sinfulness by all kinds of ideas. By various religions. Where that church... That group of people sets the standards. Each one, his own thoughts are the standard. Or, perhaps, in harmony with the religion of God, some of us may try to rely on our religious heritage, our families. I have a a grandfather that was an elder in the church. What does that do for me? (laughs) <laughs> nothing probably makes me more accountable God say your grandfather was an elder Matt <laughs> you should know better than this and it doesn't get me to heaven our church heritage that we take pride in and that, and that many good men and women before us have helped to bring us to a greater understanding of the word of truth that we might hear the preaching of the gospel and and understand it and go to the Word of God alone and not other creeds and doctrines and lists of rules that we can come here. But that doesn't save us. Stepping into this building doesn't save you. Our goodness doesn't save us. Religious piety and religious acts of service or otherwise, just people in the community, good people. We say the person's got a good heart. There are people doing good works. Surely, they'll go to heaven. But all that is, is man setting a standard of what is good. We learned this morning that goodness to God is the heart of one who is pursuing God. That's when God calls somebody good. They have a good heart. David's heart is after my own heart. And he told Saul through Samuel, I have found one better than you. That's a compliment. And yet, we see David has a human heart. That's goodness. So setting a standard for men to follow just by doing good things or being kind or being nice, that's just human standards. And they change. And we sin. And that doesn't deal with sin. Doing a canned food drive does not resolve my sin problem. I've told you before, the school bulletin that my kids bring home looks like a church bulletin. They've got community service works in there. They're praising the good things that people are accomplishing. They're bringing out the challenges and trying to call people up to me. I'm like, this looks like our church bulletin. But that doesn't redeem. Elitism doesn't redeem your standing in society, your income. Well, I may make triple figures. So what? Well, I drive this or that car. Oh, well, it's a piece of tin, four wheels. All right, steel. These are all highlighting generally good deeds, but they ignore the problem. None of these approaches bring forgiveness from God for sins. None of them bring restoration. Only God can. And so I urge you tonight, 
to call out like the psalmist. Listen to this. This is where our heart needs to be. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. He's talking to himself. You ever do this? He's talking to himself, but he's praying at the same time. Interesting. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. How about Psalm 130, verses 1 through 8? The whole psalm, it says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Those who are on the night watch that can't wait to get off work. <laughs> My soul watches for the Lord to come like those night watchmen watch for the rising of the sun. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there's mercy, and with Him is abundant redemption. And He shall redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Today we've learned from David and with David of the great Bible doctrines of redemption and restoration. So will you together with Him say, As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. Will you stand and say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and shall stand at last on earth. He'll be the last one standing. And I'm going to stand with Him. Will you say that with Job? Don't try to earn it. Don't try to impress God with your goodness. Don't try to compete for it. Well, I'm better than... Did you see what they... Don't try to compete for it. Just confess your sins. And say to your soul, O oh my soul and all that's within me, bless His holy name. And turn to the Lord your God and enjoy the exchange that He has made for your soul and serve Him with fear and reverence all the days of your life because of it. That's my plea to you tonight. It's through Christ that you obtain it. If you've become a Christian, you'll receive the Holy Spirit in your life, present with you, working powerfully in your life to serve the Lord. If we can help you tonight, let's stand and sing and you can...